and uh, it was getting pretty serious. <coughs> so they said, tell you what we'll do. Let's go out into the town square and let's pray for rain. And they said, bring all of your relics. Bring all of your symbols. And so that's what they did. The preachers and the ministers and church people went into the town square. They brought with them their Bibles and, and their crosses. And they brought their rosaries and they brought their uh, you know, hymnals. And they brought all of these, these things that were important to them. And they, they went in the town square and they all joined hands. And then the, the preachers and the ministers, they offered up eloquent prayers to God. Give us rain. Bring us rain. We need it. And of course, the next day, nothing happened. Nothing happened. Then a little boy went out to the town square and he prayed for rain. While he was praying for rain, it began to rain. It began to rain because he brought a symbol as well. He brought an umbrella. You know, it's one thing to believe intellectually in God. It's another thing to put our lives in his hands. And this is what wholehearted faith is. To put our lives in the hands and in the will and in the desire and in the mind of God. We've been talking about a number of different uh, aspects of faith. And, and we haven't covered everything. Although, we'll find that most things fall under some of these umbrellas uh, when it comes to servant faith and courageous faith and all of these persistent, persevering faith. We started with eventual faith, and you might find yourself in this position. Eventual faith is this, is this arguing, kind of, kind of wrestling back and forth with God. Do I really want to? to do what you tell me to do? Do I really believe this? Do I really want to give you my life? In fact, if you want to work through me, what does Moses finally end up saying? God, just, just pick somebody else. I'm good. I'm fine. It's this wrestling match that we all go through, and sometimes we go through it for many, many years in our lives, and yet there is no excuse. Ultimately, there's no excuse. In fact, all of God is written into creation. Now, creation is not God, but all of God is written into creation, and so we are without excuse. We argue and we give excuses, and it takes a while sometimes to find ourselves on the mountain in the presence of God and say yes. When we do say yes, when we do give our lives over to Jesus, what do we get in return? Well, we certainly get eternal life. But we also get moments in life where courage is demanded. It's needed, it's commanded to express courage in our faith. If you're going to give your lives over to Jesus, there's going to have to be a point in your life that you look evil in the eye and you say, I will not be moved. The whole world may move around me, but I'm not going to be moved. Even if this life is forfeit then it's forfeit. We nod along when we hear things like that, that, but that's reality. Not only do we see that play out in Scripture, we see that play out every day. Following Jesus is not safe. It's not meant to be safe. 
It's good, but it's not safe. Often, nearly always, what do we get? We are commanded and requested and relied upon service. Service faith. Now remember, in servant faith, no awards from men come from this. Very little, if any, recognition. You know, I'm reminded of a line in, uh, from uh, Three Musketeers where they, I, I love Three Musketeers. Um, I like that whole genre. They get done saving the day once again. They're always back and forth with the cardinal and all those things. Anyway, they end up saving the day once again. And they come together, you know, after the day is saved. And D'Artagnan looks at the other three and he says, well, once again, we've done our duty. And what have we received from it? And Athos says, well, no money. Aramis says, no love. Porthos says, no glory. And D'Artagnan basically looks at him and he says, yep, same time tomorrow. That's the servant. That's the servant. We've done our duty. And I suppose courageous and servant obedience can be done once by anyone. But we're called to do it tomorrow. And the day after that. And the day after that. The day after that. Trusting Jesus every day. With every moment. All of our lives. To persevere. This is persistent faith. Persevere in our obedience. To be persistent in our service to the king. To what end ultimately? Why are we doing all of this? What is, what is the point behind it? What's the goal in mind? And I mean something more immediate than the promised land. Because I hope our answer is not to get to heaven. I hope that's not our answer. Why do we express faith in Jesus? Why do we live out that faith in God? I, 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 I want to steer you away from the answer to get to heaven. Because you know, we've talked about this before, no amount of courage or service is going to earn your way into heaven anyway. On top of that, we're going to miss the beauty of the kingdom of God here today. So what is your goal and mine? And this is perhaps the hardest aspects, aspect of faith that we've experienced yet. This is wholehearted faith. After telling, turn to Numbers chapter, 20, or Numbers chapter 14. After telling the Israelites, we looked a little bit at this last week. After telling the Israelites that the current generation would not enter the promised land. They got to the edge of the promised land after walking through the wilderness for about two years. They got to the edge of the promised land and they could not go in because of their lack of faith, their lack of trust in God. God has brought them clear through all of the mess and the battles and the, and the rough of the wilderness. They get right to their goal and they still don't trust him. They said it would be better if we die in the wilderness. God says, have it your way. Have it your way. They're right on the edge. They've just been told. That they would not enter the promised land. Numbers chapter 14 verse 24. God says this. God says this of a man. God says this. The creator says this of the creation. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit. And follows me wholeheartedly. I will bring him into the land he went to. And his descendants will inherit it. 
This is a description of Caleb. And it's not a description of Caleb by his fellow Israelites. This is a description of Caleb by God himself. He looks at Caleb and he says, this is somebody special. This is somebody different. He's just a man, just like everybody else. He's not Superman. But there's something different about Caleb. Wholehearted faith is what we talk about today. Wholehearted obedience. Here's the secret, church. We've told this secret before. Jesus does not want most of your life. Stop thinking that. Stop living that out. Stop wrestling with that in our mind. We set the bar real low, don't we? Jesus wants most of our life. Jesus doesn't want most of your life. There's nothing Jesus can do with most of your life. He can't save most of your life. He can't give most of your life to eternity. There's nothing he can do with most of your life. Jesus wants the whole thing. He can't divide you. He can't split your heart. He can't split your mind. He wants the whole thing. Everything that you are. Everything that you care about. We begin in sanctification and Jesus, we begin giving over to Jesus even things we think about. He wants the whole thing. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Look at verse 25. Whoever wants to save their life is going to lose it. You're going to lose it. You want to hang on to this life? You want to stand at the edge of the promised land and not go in? And why did the Israelites go in? Because they were scared. They wanted to hold on to this life that they had. And God said, you're going to drop dead in the wilderness, boy. Anyone who hangs on to their life is ultimately going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. And by the way, what Christ is talking about here is not necessarily giving yourself over to the physical death. He says whoever loses or gives up ownership of their life. says, Jesus, this is yours. This is yours. I trust you. You made this life. I want to give it back to you. Jesus says, I protect that life. I store that life away to be revealed later. This wholehearted faith is how our life is saved, protected, and hidden away. You've heard the story of Jesus in Matthew 22 when he's asked about paying taxes. And he says, says, hey, show me the coin used to pay tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked them whose image is on this, whose inscription. And they all said, well, Caesar's image is on that. Then he said to them, so give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But give to God what's God's. They're like, you want to play around with your money and do that? I don't care about that, Jesus says. He says, I want your life. I want everything there is about you. I want all that you are. He's telling these folks that you're focused on the wrong thing. God wants all of you. He wants your head. He wants your heart. He wants your hands. He wants your time, treasure, and talent to boot. Give to God what he already owns. Give to God what he's given to you to care for. With this wholehearted obedience, we're certainly reminded, I think, of putting your hand to the plow and not looking back. I'm in this all the way. I'm going to go where you go. Caleb is a picture of the hand firmly put on the plow 
And again, this description of him comes from God himself. And there's others. Hebrews chapter 11. If you want to look at faith, if you want to experience faith and examples of faith, read through Hebrews chapter 11. But I like this one, verse 4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. Notice what Abel did. This was action. He was acting upon his faith. Time after time after time throughout this series, we've said you cannot separate faith and obedience. Stop trying. It doesn't exist. There is nothing in Scripture that says you can do that. In fact, there's a lot in Scripture that says you've got to connect the two. Faith leads to obedience. Faith leads to action in your life. In verse 6 of Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This earnestly seeking, that is wholehearted faith. God was not only pleased with Caleb, but he makes a point to recognize his heart. He knows everything about Caleb. He knows his heart. He knows his mind. He knows yours too. I mean, you can fool a lot of people if you want. You, we can even fool ourselves. I can fool myself all the time. Talk myself inside and out of everything. I'm real easy at tricking myself. I'm real good at tricking myself. But God wants everything about you. He knows everything about you. He knows your heart. He knows your actions. More than that, he knows the motivation behind your actions. He knows why you do what you do. He knows your mind. And so I hope this is more than just belief in God. For all these people, we see the Israelites believed in God. They believed in God. They saw the miracles. They heard the thunderous voice. They saw all the things that God did for them. All of these Israelites believed in God. Why does God single Caleb out? We've talked about this before. Because Caleb's life was more than just believing in God. It was more than just this mental acknowledgement. Caleb Believed him. Trusted him. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. Caleb trusted God, so he acted on it. Caleb knew God. So what were the defining characteristics of Caleb? What is this goal for you and for me? What is this goal when we want to incorporate the character of Christ into our life? What was Caleb? Caleb was a holy servant that follows a holy servant that follows. Notice the description from God. Again, in Numbers chapter 14, but because my servant, Caleb, my servant, Caleb. I told you a couple weeks ago that servant is the greatest possible title that Jesus can give a person. There is no title that he has. There is no title in existence that he can give to someone to elevate them higher than the title of servant. After all, we're holding out for this wonderful words or these wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. And if you're holding out or seeking a greater title, you're going to be disappointed, you're going to be disappointed because it doesn't exist. And if we want to hear well done, good and faithful service, servant, what sense does it make? To not long for service in our lives. We long for those words, but we don't want to long for service. It's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven who becomes a servant. Service is a humble position. 
It's an obedient position. It is a command, but it's not a command without a promise. First Peter 5, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. I love this in verse 6. Listen to this one. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Humble yourselves. This is his life of service, that he may lift you up in due time. In fact, the best way to write that is, is, or read that is that he may lift you up in its proper time. In its proper time. The servant. Look at verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert, sober-minded. Your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The Israelites believed in God and yet they were still devoured, weren't they? Verse 9, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world undergo the same kind of struggles and sufferings that you do. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little bit, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. There is a banquet laid out for the servant. It is prepared for them. It's ready to go for you and for me, the servant of Jesus Christ. Church, do not settle for the table scraps. We, 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 we hate this service mentality when it comes to our faith. And all we're doing is being happy with the pittance, the table scraps that fall off of this life. And we think that's enough. We think that's as good as it gets. Let me exalt myself. Let me glorify myself. Table scraps, that's all it is. There's a banquet prepared for the servant of Jesus Christ. If you are called to be a servant of God, do not stoop to be a king. If you are called to be a servant of God, do not stoop to be a king. The God of heaven honors Caleb. He honors him with this title, my servant. Remember, servant is an action word. It is something that you do. There is no such thing, church, as being a servant of God and not serving God. So how do you serve God? Obedience to Christ. What Jesus says, you do. This is the example we see in Caleb's life. God said, go and seize the land. And Caleb said, okay. Caleb said, if this is what you want, that's what I'm going to do. Even in the face of adversity, Caleb is demonstrating courageous faith, servant faith, and persistent faith. He is a servant. And he also follows, again going back to Numbers 14, but because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me, follows me. Do you follow Jesus? Or do you really want Jesus to follow you? Do you follow Jesus where he goes? Do you follow Jesus and what he says? Or do you take the lead and really, really hope Jesus is following? Jesus is keeping up. There's times, right? I mean, let's just be honest for a second. There, there, there are times when we follow Jesus and we know we will and we want to and we're going to the ends of the earth. And then there's other times in our lives. Well, we just want Jesus to stay out of it. I've got this. You stay out of it. Let me feel the way I want to feel. Let me do what I want to do. Let me act the way I want to act. Caleb follows. Again, following is another action word. 
It is doing something. Remember, when you do something, when there's an action, whether it's serving or following, there is something noticeable, even measurable in your life. You know, we sing a song here, right? Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. And I want you to ask yourself the question, is your worship sincere? Is your worship authentic? Or is it simply flattery with the mouth? By the way, we're going to see next week where flattery with the mouth makes God furious. That's actually the word he uses. When your worship is empty, it makes me furious, says God. We're going to look at the people next week. We've seen a lot of things, what you ought to do. Next week, we're going to look at the people. We're going to notice some things you might want to avoid. Is your worship sincere? By the way, that line comes from the book of Ruth. As she tells Naomi in Ruth chapter 1, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where, I, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Is this not personified in Caleb? The road ahead into the promised land we know is going to be dangerous. It's going to be difficult. It's scary. They sent out spies, but there's still a lot of unknown. And God tells Caleb, I'll go first, and I want you to follow me. Caleb followed him through the Red Sea. He followed him to the mountain and through the wilderness of a foreign land. Now Caleb stands on the edge of the promised land. There is no way a guy like Caleb's going to turn back now even though he can't see what's around the bend. Yet some did. In fact, if you read through the story, most did. We basically see Joshua and Caleb, Moses and Aaron, four out of the entire Israelite community wanting to move forward. Almost all gave up on God. How is that even possible? What is the difference between Caleb and Joshua and the rest of the people? There was a significant, noticeable, different spirit in them. Church, you've got the same option. You've got the same choice. You can cultivate a spirit of faith in your life. You could be like the Joshua's. He was the battle commander, by the way. All right? Let's not, let's not think these guys were slouches or weaklings. In fact, he was one of the greatest battle commanders that ever lived. You could be like the Joshua's and the Caleb's. Or here's a little taste of hell for you. Your life could be just like everybody else. I hate that. Just the thought of that. Just like everyone else. Caleb and Joshua were different because they trusted Jesus. Why did God want the people to drive out the inhabitants of their land rather than just do it himself? You ever wonder that? You have problems, you have issues, you have struggles in your life. You have a, a battle that you're facing. You have an enemy at the gate. God wants the Israelites to go into the promised land and drive out these foreign occupiers who were, who were living in their land. You ever wonder why didn't God just do it himself? He's got the power. He's got all the strength. He's got all the knowledge. Why doesn't he do it himself? While we're at it, why doesn't God 
fix all of our problems in our lives? Why does he want them to exercise courageous, servant, and persistent obedience? Why does he want us to do the same thing when battles loom in our lives instead of just fixing it himself? The reasons are one and the same. The pursuit of holiness. What did I say about Caleb? He is a holy servant that follows. Going back to Numbers 14. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit. A different spirit. Different from the rest. Set apart as special and unique. We've talked about this before. What do all of those words describe? Holiness. Holiness. Something different, something special, something unique. Caleb has a different spirit. It means to be sanctified. It's this Hebrew word, kadash. It means to be sanctified, consecrated, dedicated. It means to be separated from the world and all of the worldliness. He's a holy servant that follows. God wants that same holiness to well up in the lives of all the Israelites and in yours as well. 1 Peter chapter 1. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each, work, each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Peter says, for it is written, be holy as I am holy. Where is it written? What is he referring to? He's referring to the Israelites back in the wilderness. Leviticus chapter 11. I am the Lord who brought you out of, out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Leviticus chapter 19. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus chapter 20. This is all during the wilderness. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. All of these mentions of being holy are written and commanded by God when the Israelites are in the wilderness. When they're still traveling through the ruggedness and the hardship and the struggle, that's when he tells them, be holy. He doesn't tell them to be holy after all the adversity is past. He tells them to be holy in the midst of it. If he says all of these wonderful things to the Israelites, why would he not allow them to enter the promised land? Because of this, church, the wilderness is a crucible that burns away everything that is false. Everything that is cheap. Everything that's empty. It shows the Israelites what they really believe. Shows the Israelites who they truly are. You're in the wilderness now. This life is your wilderness. And sometimes wilderness can be a wilderness of plenty. And I promise you it's a crucible that burns off in your life everything that's false. Everything that's cheap. Everything that's just a facade. At the core of yourself, you're going to find out who you really are, what you really believe. That's why there's four out of the entire nation, four, that want to go into the promised land. How many in this room? How many in this town? How many of the people you know? 
How many of your friends, family, how many would stand on the edge of the promised land and say, God, where you go, I'm going to go. And if this life is forfeit, then so be it. You are a holy nation. It's the same title that God gives to the Israelites. He gives to the church a holy nation. It's on the mountain that we find out, just like Moses. It's on the mountain that we find out who we are truly meant to be. It is in the face of Pharaoh that we find out what we truly believe, just like the midwives. It is in the humble pit of service that we find out who or what our God actually is. It's through the sojourn in the wilderness that we find out who we truly are. Who are you? What do you want God to say? Hmm? Think of this singling out Caleb. Telling the entire nation, this guy's different. This guy's something special. As battles loom before us, this is when we stare into the looking glass and see either our holiness or our faithlessness. Look, it's not particularly pleasant all the time. It's not meant to be. God cares a whole lot more about your holiness than he does your happiness. He cares about your happiness, as any father would. But as any righteous father would, never at the expense of your holiness. Hardship, struggle, they all bring you closer to those who walk through it with you. I don't know exactly what your wilderness looks like now. But you have the chance. It, do, you, do you know... We haven't read this part yet. God tells the Israelites, you're not going to go in. Okay? You're not going to go in. Uh, you're going to die in the wilderness. You have to remember, if you've read the story before, the Israelites come back the next day, basically, to Moses, and they say, we've screwed up. Let us go in. We've clearly made a mistake here. Let us go into the promised land. God says, no. I've made my choice. In other words, the Israelites would give anything if they could have a do-over. If we just do this over again, we realize, what do you and I have? What gift do you and I have right now? We have the chance, right here at the beginning, right here at this first time at the edge of the promised land, to say, where you go, I'll go. No regret, no shame. Where you go, I'm going to go, and yes, I realize it's going to be difficult. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to be scary. But where you go, I'll go. We need to trust. Trust who Jesus is. I'll finish with this story. Sometimes we need to get... Sometimes we need to understand... That God is going to ask, he's going to command, he's going to demand that our faith is shown in some pretty big ways. We forget that. You know, this man is hiking one day and falls off the side of a cliff. 
and he's hanging by his fingertips off the side of the cliff. And he looks up. Can't see over the top. He looks up. He says, if anybody's up there, he's praying. He says, help me. Save me. He hears a voice. If you trust me, let go. If you trust me, let go. Man looks at where he is. Hanging off the side of the cliff. Yells up again. Anybody else up there? <laughs> There's many times God says, I want you to follow. I want you to follow. And it's the holy ones. It's the holy ones that follow. The Exodus story from bondage to the promised land is there to show your journey. That's why it's there, church. It's there to show the journey of a person. It's there to show the journey of mankind. Either all mankind or single life, doesn't matter. That we would answer the call to serve Jesus. That he might set us free from the ruler of this world. That he might save us by the blood of the lamb that covers our homes. That he might go before us, leading us, providing, protecting, and sustaining us along the way. That we might make our journey through the wilderness, facing battles, learning trust and obedience, and being refined by difficulties of the journey that demand we seek God's deliverance. That we might persevere day after day, year after year, season after season, until we find ourselves on the edge of that promised land. Yet, sadly, so few, so few enter through that narrow gate. So few. Holiness, service, following Jesus wherever he goes. This is the goal. I told you when we talked about courageous faith, eventually all of us have to get to this place in our lives where we do what is right simply because it is right. Nothing more, nothing less. Guys, this is what the wilderness can do for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he died for us. We thank you that he has forgiven us of our sins. Father, if we believe that, Help us to live that out. No more flattery. No more facade. That we will live out the commands of Jesus. That where he goes, we will go. What he says, we'll say. That we might be a holy servant, just like Caleb. That we might face ugliness and danger and destruction and horrible thing, evil in the eye might follow you right through. Father, help us to be holy servants. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing.
When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. So teach my song. So teach my song to rise to you. When temptation comes my way. And when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, Soak this in a little bit. Now, I'm going to relax, so don't bother me today. But I'm kidding about that. Let's pray. Let's, have, let's get out of here. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the love that you have. We thank you, Father, for your creation. We thank you that we do see you in this incredible world and everything that there is. And there is no excuse not to give our life over to you. We thank you that you are so patient, patient with us all the time. And that you call, that you beckon, this provenient grace that you pour out to us. Father, help us to respond to that call. To realize that just one of the worst things in the world is to just be like everyone else. We want to be like you. We want to be that servant. We want to be that holy servant that, Father, gives our life over to you in this wilderness. In Jesus' name. know that we have Garrett Dom and Dalton Pop, and they're not in this service, uh, and we may have others going to camp today. Uh, I, I know we have those kids going to camp today, or this week, um, and again, there may be others, uh, but I want you to, I, I want to pray for them today, but I also want to remind you of uh, the significance, and, and really, many, many times, in fact, Rose shared this with us uh, a little while back, the uh, the power of some of these weeks of camp and, and, and what they can do, what they can say uh, to kids in their lives. Sometimes it works out very well. Sometimes it doesn't. I get it. I've had good weeks of camp, some bad weeks of camp. Um, but it is important, I think, to think about these things. If you can get your kid to go to camp, um, 
it, it could be very beneficial to them. So I just want to pray for uh, these boys and everybody else that's going to camp at least this week. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the camps around. We thank you for Christian camps, those who uh, immerse themselves in, in, in doing what they can to honor Jesus and to tell other people about Jesus and to serve in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you for the kids and their parents who are going to camp and those who get to experience some of this stuff. Father, I ask that you... I ask that you'll protect them. I ask that you'll help them to have a, a good experience in the presence of Jesus. That they'll be taught correctly, uh, but they'll also take a great deal of joy in this. And that they'll come back refreshed. They'll come back excited about who Jesus is and what Jesus is. I thank you, Father, for those that are serving. I thank you for those who are caring for them throughout the week, providing for them, whatever that service may be. <clears throat> and I ask, Father, that you will help them. To take joy in their service, knowing that uh, knowing that they're serving Jesus by serving others. I thank you for this chance and this opportunity. I also thank you for this today, this time of worship, this time of study, this time of glorifying Jesus. Help us to glorify Jesus tomorrow in our lives and the day after and the day after. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me, if you will, to <coughs> Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, while you're doing that, there was a uh, village that had not received rain in some time, uh, kind of the opposite of the way, the way we are right now, uh, had not received rain in some time, and it was getting pretty serious, uh, a lot of the crops were dying on the vine and so forth, and finally it got so serious that the, the town said, hey, we got to pray about this. We've got to beseech God for rain. And so they went to the different churches and they went to the different uh, groups and they said, hey, you know, bring out your preachers and bring out your ministers and your Sunday school teachers and all this. And while you're doing that, we're going to meet in the middle of town. While you're doing that, bring out town, bring out your relics, you know, bring out your figures. And so they brought their Bibles with them or they brought their crosses with them or they they brought their rosaries or they brought the, you know, their special hymnal or whatever it was. And they brought those out there with them. And they got into a big circle and they prayed. They were eloquent prayers you know, from all of these different ministers around town. And, and, and beautiful flowery words. And the next day, nothing happened. Nothing happened. Dad, that little boy went out. He prayed for rain. While he was praying for rain, it began to rain. See, the little boy also brought a relic with him, a special thing. He brought an umbrella. He brought an umbrella. You know, we have talked about different aspects of faith, and, and, and we haven't exhausted all of them. There's different areas, you know, different, different ways in which faith looks as we're obedient to Jesus. But a lot of our faith and our obedience to Christ falls under some of these areas, uh, uh, whether it's servant faith or, or persevering faith or courageous faith, you know, all of this, these things that we do in service to Christ. But we started off with what you might call eventual faith, looking at Moses. And this is the same wrestling match that often we go through. Now, hopefully we go through it maybe a little bit when we're, when we're younger. And even when we're younger, we say, hey, that's enough. I don't want to wrestle with God anymore. 
Uh, I want to give my life over to him. But sometimes we wrestle with God throughout a lot of our life. He works on us and he calls us. This is, this is prevenient grace. That's what that's, that's called. He calls us into his presence. He wants us to serve him, wants us to give our lives to him, to live out our mission. And sometimes we fight back with that. And we come up with an excuse after excuse. And we come up with reason after reason. And sometimes we can even get to the point in our lives where we say, God, look, the fact of the matter is I kind of like my life right now. Just go pick somebody else. Go, go choose someone else. I'll handle my own life. It can take a while to find ourselves on this mountain in the very presence of God and say yes. But that is what he wants. That's what he, in fact, pleads for in our hearts. That we would give our lives and our hearts, our minds, our desires, our pursuits over to who God is and what God is. And by the way, we are without excuse. The character of God is written into, the Bible says, written into all of creation. Even you and me, as we are created in the image of God, written into all of creation. Now, creation is not God, okay? It's not connected in some, you know, uh, unknowable ether. No, but his character, his prints, as it were, are all over creation. And we are left without excuse to realize that God is there and he calls us. And so we do eventually, I hope in your life, say yes. It took a while to work on Moses, but eventually Moses said yes. And gave his life over to God, gave his mission over to God. When we do say yes, we give over our lives. And when we give over our lives, what do we get? Often, we get moments where courage is demanded, where courage is needed. There is a time when God says, serve your king. I, I get bothered sometimes when Christians go through life thinking that they don't have a king. No matter where you're, you're actually physically living... Every Christian that exists or ever existed has a king that they must serve, that wants your service. The only difference is it's a very close king. It's not a tyrant. You know, he's a, he's a close, loving king. But there's a time when the king wants you in his service, and often courage is needed. Every Christian eventually is going to go through the point, go through a moment, and hopefully many moments they'll remain strong where they have to look evil in the eye and they will say, I will not be moved. The whole world may move around me, but I'm not going to move because I'm following Jesus. And even if this life is forfeit, then it's forfeit because I've got an eternal life. It was meant to be temporary anyway. These are tents. These are tents. Don't live in a tent. Camp in a tent. That's fine. Or even bigger, camp in an RV. But it's meant to come down. It's meant to come down. Often, nearly always, we get service commanded, we get service requested, we get service relied upon when we give our lives over to Jesus. <clears throat> now bear in mind, remember, when you're going to express your servant faith, when you're going to obey in your service, you're not going to receive uh, awards from men for this, okay? Very little, if any, recognition in your life. But that's just the way service is. That's what true service is. It's a humble position. I'm, uh, I'm reminded of, uh, of a line on in, uh, Three Musketeers. I love Three Musketeers. I read Three Musketeers all the time. 
that whole genre I just love. <clears throat> and then there's this moment where they save the day once again, you know, and they reconvene outside of the palace, and D'Artagnan looks at the other three, and he says, well, fellas, he says, once again, we've done our duty. We've saved France. What did we get for it? And Athos says, no money. Aramis says, no love. And Porthos says, no glory. And D'Artagnan essentially looks at him and says, yep. He says, same time tomorrow. <laughs> That's the servant. That's the servant. Sometimes it can be a thankless job. And I suppose courageous <clears throat> obedience and servant obedience, anybody can do once. But we're called to persist in our faith. We're called to persevere in our faith. We're called to do this day after day, year after year, season after season, to persist in our service <coughs> to the king. To what end, though? If we can wrap our minds around all of that, where are we trying to go with all of this? Is there a goal in mind? And I mean something more immediate. I mean something more immediate than what you may call the promised land. Because I hope your answer, the answer of why, I hope it is not to get to heaven. I hope that's not your answer. Now, that's an incredible gift, eternal life with Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But I hope when someone asks you why you obey, why you live out the commands of your king, why you express the faith or know that it's important to express the faith that you do, I hope your, your answer is not to get to heaven. Because we know that no amount of courage or service or whatever, uh, any other form of faith you want to use is going to be enough to earn your way into heaven. On top of all of that, we're going to miss today. Remember, we have our minds today, we have our minds in eternity. And if we're only living for heaven, we're going to miss the kingdom of God today. So what should be your goal and my goal? And this is perhaps maybe the hardest picture of faith of all. After telling the Israelites that the current generation would not enter the promised land due to their lack of faith, God tells Moses something. Uh, and remember, we were on the edge of the promised land. We talked about this a little bit last week. They went through the wilderness for about two years from Egypt to this place. Most of that was not walking. They actually camped at Mount Sinai for a long time. And then they got to the edge of the promised land. While they were there, they realized, they understood, they remembered that God carried them through this journey of the wilderness. But they get to their goal and they say that it's too hard. They say that God's not with them. They say that God's not powerful enough, that he's not good enough. He's not strong enough. And they're not going to follow him into the promised land. In fact, they get so terrified because of their lack of faith. They tell God, boy, it would be better if we just die in the wilderness. And God says... Okay, okay, you've got a chance right now to enter into the promised land, to follow me, to show this faith that you profess. And they said, we'd rather die. God said, so be it, so be it. To the entire nation, the entire nation. So he tells them. They're not going to enter the promised land because of their lack of faith. In Numbers 14, 24, we find this. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to. He was one of the spies. And his descendants will inherit. 
God. This is God talking about Caleb. Think about that for a moment. This is God praising a man. This is the creator praising the creation. What a fascinating thing. What a fascinating experience. That we should be that type of servant. Caleb. Caleb, there's very few that want to go into the promised land. There's very few that want to obey God. And Caleb is one of them. Joshua is another one. And I put in Moses and Aaron there too. Wholehearted faith. Wholehearted faith. This is what we talk about today. You could say wholehearted faith. Or you could say wholehearted obedience. Remember, you cannot separate the two. Please don't try. Here's the secret, church. We've talked about this secret before. Jesus does not want most of your life. In fact, Jesus cannot do anything with most of your life. He cannot save most of your life. He cannot split you up. He can't divide you. He can't divide most of your mind from all of your mind or most of your heart from all of your heart. We cannot, should not, must not be content with giving God most of us, most of our priorities, most of our emotion, most of our thought, most of our obedience. Jesus doesn't want most of your life. He wants the whole thing. He wants the whole heart. He wants the whole mind. You know what? He wants everything else thrown in there, too. He says, give me your time, treasure, talent. Give me your body. Give me everything you've got. Because I want to save all of you. All of you. I can't save a part of you. I can only save all of you. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Look at verse 25. For whoever wants to save their life We'll lose it. You see, this is what the Israelites were doing on the edge of the promised land. They thought by moving forward, they were going to be hurt. They thought by moving forward, they might be killed. They thought by moving forward, it was going to be too difficult or too dangerous. They were trying to save this little life that they had. They were trying to hang on to a subpar life. Because any life that does not give themselves over to their king is a subpar life. And so they're trying to hang on to this subpar life. And what happens? They die in the wilderness. They lose it. They lose that life that they were trying to hang on to. Jesus is saying the same thing to you and me. He's not necessarily saying give over your life in a, in a, in a physical way. That is die necessarily in a physical way. Though sometimes that's required. Sometimes that's commanded. Right? We see that throughout Scripture. He says, I want you to give me your entire life, your mind, your heart, your hands, your head, everything that you are. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life, that is, gives it over to Jesus, gives their life for me, will find it. Jesus tells us this is the wholehearted faith that he wants, and this is how your life is saved. Your life is not saved by giving over a portion of your mind. Your life is saved by giving over your life to Jesus. It's protected. It's hidden away. The other neat thing that Colossians tells us is your real life then, who you really are, who you were always meant to be, is then going to be revealed later. 
I don't even know what that's going to be like. It's going to be good. I know that. But it's going to be revealed later. Matthew 22, show me, you've heard this story, Matthew chapter 22, 19 through 21. When asked about paying taxes, you've heard this before. Jesus says, show me a coin used for paying taxes. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, well, whose image is on this coin? Whose inscription's on it? And they said, well, Caesar's is on this. And so he flips it back to him and he says, well, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But you give to God what's God's. He says, you guys are looking at the wrong thing. You're too small. He said, God wants all of it. He wants everything you have. And you want to focus on time, church, and talent. That's fine. God wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants your life. He wants it to be wholehearted. Give to God what he already owns. We've been given this life on loan. The life you have, you don't own. This is what we learned from the beginning of Genesis through the end of the revelation of Christ. That we are to be good stewards of this life. Stewards of this life. Not owners of this life. We are to be good stewards of this life. And part of good stewardship is rendering back to the king what he owns. To give to the king this life with wholehearted obedience. We are certainly reminded of putting your hand to the plow and not looking back. I've put my hand to the plow. I've decided to follow Jesus. And I'm moving in this direction. And I'm going to forget about what's behind me. This is what Paul says. I'm going to forget about what's behind me. And I'm going to press forward. That's wholehearted obedience. Jesus knows what wholehearted obedience looks like. He showed that in his own life. And here today, Caleb. Caleb is a picture of a hand firmly on the plow. Looking forward. He says, God, where you go, I will go. What you want me to do, I will do. And if this life is forfeit in the process, so be it. I'm living for eternity. And he's honored by God. This description of Caleb above, remember, came from God himself. And there's others. Other descriptions like this in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering. Than Cain did. Abel brought, by the way, Abel brought. Abel brought, that's an action word. That's action. By faith, Abel did something. It wasn't by faith, Abel talked about a lot of stuff. Or thought about a lot of stuff. No, by faith, Abel did something. By faith, Caleb wants to enter the promised land. Faith and obedience go together. Do not ever, please, don't separate the two. James tells us it's impossible to do that. Faith and obedience go together. Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended by God as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. Abel gave to God what belonged to God. Again, wholehearted faith. Hebrews 11, six, uh, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. And he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Earnestly seeking him. That's wholehearted faith. That's doing whatever it takes to know who God is and integrate his precepts and his character into your life. It takes a while. It takes a, it takes a while. I think about this all the time in my own life. Just, just mistakes I make and things I can't get right. And, and temptations and struggles that I have that keep coming up, that keep popping up. And I think about this. And, I, and, and every time these things happen, sometimes, sometimes I have this picture of Christ 
and I follow Jesus, even in my own body, my own self feels horrible, and I just want to give in to the temptation. But sometimes I don't. And I'm telling you, you can let that eat away at your heart, and yet Jesus comes back to me and he says, yeah, but you're still here, aren't you? You're still going. You're still moving. You're still persistent. You're still persevering. He said, let me fix this. Let me work through this. You're going to make some mistakes along the way. Earnestly seek him. God was not only pleased with Caleb, but he makes it a point to recognize his heart before the Israelites. God knows Caleb's heart. He knows yours as well. He knows your mind. He knows the motivations. We think we can fool him sometimes. He knows the motivation behind your actions. He knows the why. You do what you do and say what you say. He knows your heart. I hope that you understand that Caleb had more than a belief in God. All of these people, all of these Israelites believed in God. All of them. They saw the miracles. They heard the thunderous voice. They saw the lightning and the fire on the mountain. The water from the rock and the quail and the manna and you name it. They all believed in God. But as we've said so many times before, what was the difference between Caleb and the rest of them? Caleb didn't just believe in God. He believed him. He trusted him. He gave his life over to him. That's what it takes to follow God wholeheartedly. Faith and obedience. He acted upon what he knew to be true. Caleb knew God. So what are the defining characteristics of Caleb? This is the best way to describe, I think, this, this, this special guy that, that God points out. He was a holy servant that follows. A holy servant that follows. And you get all of this from Numbers chapter 14. It's the only verse I've used for this, for this uh, message. Numbers chapter 14, again going back to verse 24. But because my servant Caleb, he's a holy servant that follows. Because my servant Caleb. He calls him a servant. You know, I, I told you a couple weeks ago that this is, servant is the greatest title that Jesus ever gives a person, ever. He has no greater title. So if you're holding out for a greater title, if you're holding out for a bigger title, a more important title, you're going to be disappointed. After all, we long to hear, or at least I do, and I'll bet everybody in this room longs to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, don't we? Imagine that. Imagine that. After everything, after the work, after the trial, after the wilderness, we hear the words from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't make any sense to me to long for those words and not long for service in our lives. That doesn't make any sense at all. If we're looking forward to well done, good and faithful servant, we ought to now be looking forward to opportunities to serve Jesus. You can't deny one and expect the other. You can't deny one and want the other. Even that's contrary to reason. He is a servant and even God himself calls him his special servant. Service is a humble position. I get it. It's an obedient position. It's a command 
to serve Jesus Christ. How do we serve Jesus Christ? By doing what he says we should do, not doing what he says we shouldn't do. The best way to serve Jesus is to show the love of Jesus to the people you encounter. It's not that complicated. It's hard to do sometimes because our pride gets in the way, but it's not hard to figure out. But this command comes with a promise. 1 Peter chapter 5, God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. In fact, the best way to read that, the best translation of that is so that he may lift you up in its proper time. In its proper time. This comes with a promise. We can read on. Look at this. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert, be sober-minded. Peter says, be careful. He says, the enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He ends up devouring the Israelites even while they're on the edge of the promised land. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world, they're going through the same kind of things you are, the same suffering, same chaos, same difficulty, same struggle, same wilderness. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. The servant has a banquet prepared for them. You have a banquet prepared for you. Church, don't settle for the table scraps. This is what we do. When we give up our faith, our trust, when we give up our obedience to Christ, certainly when we give up our service to Christ, we are settling for the table scraps of this world. And he's got a banquet set up for you. Don't deny him that. That chance, that gift for you to receive this eternal banquet. Think of it this way. If you're called to be a servant of Christ, do not stoop to be a king. If you're called to be a servant of Christ, do not stoop to be a king. There are far greater things. Far greater things. The God of heaven honors Caleb. And he honors him with this title, servant. Remember, servant is an action word. Serve is an action word. It's something you do. There's no such thing as being a servant of God and not serving God. And so we serve God by obedience to Christ, by showing that love to those we encounter. God says, go and seize the land of Caleb. And Caleb says, okay. Okay. Even in the face of adversity, Caleb has demonstrated courageous faith, servant faith, persistent faith. But he is a servant that follows. Notice again what God says about Caleb, Numbers 14, 24, back the same verse. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me. Do you follow? Do you follow Jesus? Do you follow him where he leads? Because I got to tell you, sometimes Jesus and I argue as to who's following who. Right? Sometimes I follow Jesus until it's really convenient for me to tell Jesus, hey, why don't you follow me? And this is the struggle that goes on in my heart, my mind, my heart might go on in yours as well. And this is one of the worst things that we can do, is ask Jesus to follow us. Ask Jesus. See, we want to pick our own way, we want to choose our own path, and then we turn around, and what do we do? We sincerely do hope Jesus is going along with us. We hope he is. Instead of following where Jesus leads in his character, in his words, in his direction of the word. 
Remember, following is another action word. It's something you do. When you do something, it is noticeable. It's even measurable. We sing the song, right? Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. You've got to ask yourself the question, is your worship sincere? Or is it simply flattery with the mouth? There are times I've got the mentality, I've got the heart, I've got the mind to see, to read, to understand the words that I'm saying and singing. I can't do it. Because I'm being selfish, right? Or pride, or fear. And at the very least, I can't say it now. We take these things seriously. We have to take these things seriously. We wrestle with God. We wrestle. That's what Israel means, by the way. The word Israel means wrestles with God. <laughs> I mean, many times we can all be called Israel, right? Wrestling, wrestling with God. Our worship needs to be sincere, not flattery with the mouth. In fact, next week we're going to talk about how literally that flattery of the mouth makes God furious. His word said it makes me furious when that happens. You know, that where you go, I'll go, that comes from the book of Ruth. In the first chapter, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Is this not the personification of Caleb? God, where you want me to go, that's exactly where I'm going to go. The road ahead is dangerous. It's difficult. You are in the wilderness. It's dangerous. It's difficult. It's scary. I know they sent out spies, but even to, it's still unknown to a certain extent. God tells Caleb, I'll go first, and I want you to follow me. Caleb followed him through the Red Sea. He followed him to the mountain. He followed him through the wilderness, through a foreign land, and now he stands on the edge of the promised land. There is no way Caleb is going to turn back now. Yet some did. In fact, most did. That's a lesson in and of itself that we're going to talk about next week. Most turned back. Almost all of them. How is it possible? And this is where you need to look at your own mind, your own heart. How is it possible that all of these people experienced the same thing Caleb did? And most of them turned back. Caleb and Joshua refused. Most of them turned back. What is the difference between Caleb and Joshua and the rest of the people? What's the difference? For that matter, while we're asking questions, and we'll answer this one here in a minute. While we're asking questions, why did God even want the people, the Israelites, to drive out the inhabitants of the promised land? Why didn't he just do it himself? He's got the power. He's got the authority. Why didn't he just drive them out and then the Israelites come in? For that matter, why doesn't God just fix the problems in your life? Why doesn't he just win the battles in your life without you engaging in the battle? Wouldn't that make a lot more sense? He's God, we're not. He's got this figured out. He's got the power. He's got the authority. Just fix all the battles. That way I don't have to fight any of them. Same way with the Israelites. We wouldn't even be having this discussion. God would have run them out. Caleb would have gone in just with everybody else. And life goes on. Why does God do these things? What made Caleb and Joshua different? The answer is one and the same. The pursuit of holiness. 
the pursuit of holiness in your life, in Joshua's life, in Caleb's life, as opposed to everyone else. Everyone else. Let's go back to the last time, Numbers 14, verse 24. For my servant Caleb has a different spirit. A different spirit. We talked about this recently. Different from the rest. Set apart. Special. Unique. What word does all of those descriptive words, what are they describing? Holiness. Holiness. To be holy. Holy is this, this, this Hebrew word, kadesh. It means to be sanctified, consecrated, dedicated. It means to be separated from the world and worldliness. That's what we said of Caleb. He's a holy servant that follows. And God wants that same holiness to well up in the lives of all of the Israelites, yours as well. But see, there is not the same pursuit in their minds and in their hearts of this holiness that there is in Caleb and in Joshua and in Moses. With all of their struggles, they're still pursuing holiness. Now we get back to answering the original question. To what end? What are we looking for? What are we trying to do? If it's not to get to heaven, what is our pursuit? Holiness. Because when we don't pursue holiness or care about holiness or want to be set apart from God for special service, you know what happens to us? And if you want to just, this is, this is on this side of the grave, this is my personal little taste of hell. What happens to us is that we are just like everyone else. That tastes bad in my mouth. I can't imagine living life just like everyone else. And I'm not even talking about just what I believe. I mean, all kinds of stuff. Just like everybody else. No better, no worse, no different. What a detestable thing to be. But not Caleb. Joshua. Moses, Aaron, four. Out of a group of like 600,000, right? They're not going to be like everybody else. They're going to be something more, something special. See, one of the things that you guys have, that I have right here, right now, today, is that this is brought before your eyes and before your heart, before your mind, right here, through the Word of God. I, I don't know if you remember the story, and I'm sure some of you do. It's been a while since we read through the whole thing, but they get to the edge of the promised land, and God says, you're not going to enter because of your faithlessness. You're going to die in the wilderness. Well, wh what we forget sometimes is they walk, the Israelites show back up the next day. And they say, we made a mistake. Can we have a do-over? And God says, no. No. I've made my decision. And that's final. But where are we? We are in this place in life before that decision of rejecting God of the promised land. We have these things open to our minds and our eyes right now. We get to make that decision that says, no, God says, go, we're going. No matter how difficult it is, no matter what the struggle is, it's the pursuit of holiness. It's the same thing for the Israelites, same thing for us, First Peter chapter 1. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. 
For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So that you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Peter says, as it is written. Written where? Written to the Israelites while they're in the wilderness. You find it in Leviticus chapter 11, Leviticus chapter 19, and Leviticus chapter 20. All of these things given to the Israelites while they are in the wilderness to be holy. Not after all the adversity is gone, but while they're in the middle of the adversity. God says, be holy. Be special. Be unique. The wilderness is a crucible that burns off all that is false. You're in the wilderness now, and I don't know what specifically your wilderness looks like. But it burns off what is fake. It burns off the facade. It helps you understand and realize who you are. Church, it's on the mountain that we find out who we are truly meant to be, just like Moses. It's in the face of Pharaoh that we find out what we truly believe. It's in the humble pit of service that we find out who or what our God truly is. It's through the sojourn in the wilderness that we find out who we truly are. As battles loom before us, this is where you and me stare into the looking glass and we see either our holiness or our faithlessness. Look, it's not particularly pleasant. Nobody's going to pretend that it is. But God cares a whole lot more about your holiness than he does your happiness. He cares about your happiness as any father would, but as any righteous father would, not at the expense of your holiness. Never at the expense of your holiness. Hardship and struggle. They bring you closer to the one you face hardship and struggle with. The Exodus story from bondage to the promised land is there to show your journey. Read it as such. It's there to show your journey or the journey of mankind, whether it's a single person or a group of people, that we would be called to serve him, that he might set us free from the ruler of this world. That he might save us by the blood of the lamb that covers our home. That he might go before us, leading us, providing and protecting and sustaining us along the way. That we might make our journey through the wilderness, facing battles, learning trust and obedience, being refined by difficulties in that journey that demand that we seek God's deliverance. That we might persevere day after day, year after year, season after season. Until we find ourselves on the edge of that promised land. Sadly. So few, so few enter through that narrow gate. The pursuit of Jesus is the pursuit of obedience to your king. That's what faith is, expressed in incredible ways in the Exodus story. Make sure you're here next week. Next week we look at the people and we see what not to do in a lot of these different situations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we get the chance right now today to have our eyes open to holiness, to the, the pursuit of holiness, the fact that we can be like so many of these servants, that we can be like Jesus, that we can develop that character in our lives, Father. And right now, right now, here, it seems easy. It sounds nice. Father, we know we're still in the wilderness. And we're going to need strength. We're going to need courage. We're going to need dedication. We're going to need resolve. When you say go, we say we will follow. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing.